Revelation chapter 5. If you are a visitor or relatively new to Grace City, we have been working our way through the book of Revelation. And even if you're, you didn't grow up in Sunday school and you're not super churchy, I, I suspect that this is one of these books. It's just, it's, it's made its way so well into pop culture even that every, everyone knows about the book of Revelation. And you're welcome to disagree, but I think Revelation is one of these books that's really, it's, it's quite, um, there's, we have mixed feelings about it. Um, some people are like, yes, Revelation, best book ever. Let's get into it. Let's get weird. And others of you are like, ah, you know what? I remember this book and I remember feeling anxious and like people getting arguments and debate over things to do with like the end of the world. And is that, is that what we're doing? No, no. That's what, actually, we're trying very hard not to do that because the book's incredible. The book is an absolute gift from God. I mean, it, it is part of God's word and it's a very unique part of the Bible. Um, there's promises and, and, and things that God wants to reveal to his people, to us, that are meant to be radically encouraging, particularly for when God's people find themselves living in a system, if you will, even a political system. The book of Revelation is very political. Sorry if that freaks you out. Um, But when God's people find themselves living in an empire that is radically anti-Christ, the book of Revelation is meant to be an encouragement, a reminder, this is what it looks like for the church to conquer in a world that's trying to wipe us out. Not to be too melodramatic. That's Revelation. And we've made it all the way up to chapter five. So are you there? Are you ready? Okay. Um, Normally, I like to just read through an entire portion of text. Just let it kind of speak for itself. This morning, I believe it's going to be helpful if we break it down a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to do that. We're going to take it in bite-sized pieces. We'll read a portion, and then I'll have a few things to say. So here we go. We will begin in verse 1, as you can see. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Let's pause there. Last week, this vision that we're just jumping right back into uh, began in chapter four. This is the, the, the vision that John, who's the, sort of the person writing these words as he's being led by the Holy Spirit, this is a vision that God gave him 
of the throne room in heaven. So this, this is where we're at. This is a continuation of last week, chapter four. And he's looking into this throne room. And it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's, 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 it's grand. It's, it's awesome. It's terrifying. It's wonderful. It's, it's overwhelming. And he's trying to use a rich, highly symbolic language to describe almost this indescribable vision of a reality that exists in heaven. And this is the throne room of God. And God himself, the king, the creator of the universe and all things is seated on his throne. And the vision continues. And he says that as he's looking at this king, God seated on his throne, he notices a scroll in the right hand, the hand of power, the hand of authority of the king, and it's sealed with seven seals. And it's, it's full of words written on the front and the back. Of course, the scroll the seals, they all represent something of authority. This is the edict of the king. So he's firmly established on his throne, but he's not just sitting there. He has plans. He has an edict that he wants to action, but it's sealed. The seven seals, seven, of course, is a number that comes up over and over. It's 40-something times plus throughout the book of Revelation. And this number is significant. It is the number of completion. So there's something about this scroll that speaks of complete authority. The completion of the king's plan yet to be action. Because the question is who is worthy to open this scroll, to break the seven seals, to action the plan of the king. And so what happens? John, the one seeing into the throne room of God, he begins to weep loudly. It's rather significant, and I think it's quite helpful for us because right in the midst of this otherwise glorious and hope-filled scene, here's John, begins to bawl uncontrollably out loud. You remember the last time you were so upset that you began to just like sob out loud? Have you ever done that? I mean, that's, that is, that's deep, deep sorrow where you begin to start like, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever actually done that. When I cry, I tend to, you know, keep it, keep it civil. <laughs> you know, just... It's not like I'm emotionless, but I don't, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself. But this is the kind of sorrow that none of that matters. This is a deep, deep anguish. It compels this man to sob out loud. And this is, this is significant. This is important. I think this is so helpful for us because there's this incredible, I use this word all the time when I'm preaching, paradox that we've got to get a hold of, that we need to grasp attention, if you will. That in this throne room, in the middle of this vision, there is, this, there is the grandeur and the beauty and the hope of God on display as we see the king seated on his throne, and yet simultaneously, the one looking on begins to cry out and weep uncontrollably. And have you ever been in that place where you know 
that Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, surely you must have some revelation of the fact that our king is sovereign. He is seated on his throne. He has not lost control. He is still overseeing all created things, including you and I, and there's, there's great hope in that. And yet, there's still like real life in the world and pain and hurt and sorrow. And even in the very throne room of God, it's possible to find yourself in that place where you're, you're living, you're, you're wrestling in that tension of promise and yet pain. Romans 8.22, I think this is wonderful puts it like this. The Apostle Paul writing says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, sons and daughters, for the redemption of our bodies, for in This hope, we are saved. Hope is an anchor for the soul. But we still have to endure the storms of life. This is not just mere optimism. This is realistic hope. This is throne room hope. This is the hope that is an anchor for our soul. And yet we still have to navigate the storms of life. But then there's verse five. Then there's verse five. And one of the elders, 24 elders, seated on thrones around the throne in this throne room of God, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that, we, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Our hero appears. The lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christian hope, it's a very particular kind of hope. Our hope isn't merely in a future reality. That would be a kind of hope. But Christian hope, it's something, it's something very, very particular. It's not merely a hope in future reality, it's, it's a hope rooted in a reality that has already begun to break out. It's, it's weird, in this vision, it's almost as if time is getting jumbled up. Uh, John is seeing things that are to take place. In fact, we've been told twice already in Revelation that that John is going to be shown things that are still to come. And so there's a futuristic a tense or sense 
to what we're being shown here. And yet, there's this one, this lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David who has conquered. And he is able to crack open the seals and action the edict of the greater one. And so there's this, it seems to be this paradox where John is weeping and yet he's told to weep no more because the hope he has is not merely rooted in reality that is yet to come, but there's something that's already begun to break out. It's what theologians called an inaugurated eschatology. Have you ever heard that? It's one of those fancy ones. An inaugurated eschatology, this idea that the kingdom of God, although still coming, has already begun to break out. And so our hope isn't ever merely just in a reality that is yet to come, but it's, it's something that we're beginning to experience here and now. When Jesus conquered Satan through his sacrificial death on the cross, something eternal shifted. Something actually happened. Past tense. What we had always hoped, adoption, redemption, actually began to break out into this world. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Did you catch that? Our hope is this wonderful, paradoxical kind of hope. We get to experience the very thing that we're hoping for now. And so we might find ourselves weeping in moments, but Christians have this weird way of like breaking out in chorus in the middle of dungeon cells. It's why the Bible says we can rejoice in trials because we know that God's working something through that, but there's something to actually rejoice about now. I'm looking forward to this adoption into the family of God, and yet I know that in Jesus, because of what he's already done, I can celebrate my adoption now. I am a child of God, and God knows I'm looking forward to the day when I can experience fully what it means to be loved like that. Is that weird, or is that just the coolest thing ever? I love it. Inaugurated eschatology, there you go. That's where the action's at. The darkness is still dark, but the dawn is now virtually palpable. I like that. We're not denial. We're not in denial. Or I like it how Les- Leslie Newbegin put it, the famous, uh, now deceased British missionary, when asked, as he surveyed culture and the state of the world and the island that he lived on, he was asked, Leslie, are you a pessimist or an optimist? And he paused and thought and finally said, Neither. Jesus is alive. It's a different kind of hope. And what of our hero? Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Let's start with the root of David. These are explicit references to Old Testament prophecies. If you listen to our very first installment of Revelation, the prologue several months ago, I said, we must look out for the hyperlinks. It's like reading through Wikipedia. It's just, there's tons of hyperlinks. Here's a couple of big ones. Isaiah chapter 11, one of the ancient prophets said, there shall come forth 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The stump of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David. David was the king of Israel. This is talking about the root of David, the one that now has come front and center, who's who's in the middle, the very center of the throne room is the root of David, the stump of Jesse, the one who is to come forth. What about the lion of the tribe of Judah? This is a reference to the prophecy given by Jacob, one of the patriarchs of old, to his son, Judah. He said in Genesis chapter 49, Judah is a lion's cub. I named my son Judah for this very reason, because he's this, if you know Judah, he's a little lion. You, want, you ever wonder if like kids become who you name them or the other way around? It's, it's the weirdest thing. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Our hero, our hero sounds like some sort of a national militaristic um, What's that? Conquer. There's another word I wanted to use. I actually have it in my notes here, and I've been like debating. I don't think I can say it in church. But it's, it's, just, it's just the right word. I'm not going to say it, though. Hmm? Darian. Darian, okay. Oh, you dare me to do it. I mustn't. I mustn't. I should have run this by my wife. Darn it. Okay, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Our hero... The lion of, now people are looking at me like, well, but you're thinking it. Isn't that just as bad? It's not that bad, all right? It's not that bad. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are are words and these are prophecies that would seem to describe a kind of national militaristic conquer. That would certainly seem to be what the hero is supposed to be like. And yet this is where everything really starts to kick off. This is where the DMT really kicks in. This is where the vision. Moving on. Verses six. What is this hero like? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the reconfiguration of God. No one saw this coming. Well, maybe a few. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion, as it turns out, 
is a lamb. And not just any lamb. If you're into the Greek, this is uh, the word arnion, which is in the diminutive form, which means we're talking about a baby lamb, a lamblet, if you will. This is our mighty warrior king, the lion of the lineage of the king. It's a lamb. It's a lamb who's been slain. Can we actually go to the next slide? There's our lamb. Our lamb. What a picture. What a radical challenge regarding the way we think about and do power. God does power unlike the way we do power. We drop bombs. God lays down his life to save his enemies. We try to intellectually or emotionally dominate our opponents. Jesus left his throne and came down to give us new life. We digitally assault each other behind our firewalls. God makes himself vulnerable in pursuit of relationship with those who often deny him. We spend most of our lives figuring out ways to avoid pain and suffering. The God who created the universe and everything in it used his power to go on a rescue mission of mercy so that he might suffer for us. We chase after autonomy and independence as if they were the pinnacle of freedom in this life. Jesus set captives free by trusting and submitting his will to the will of his loving and faithful father. This king does power unlike we do power. Our hero is a lamb who's standing in a pool of his own blood. This reconfigures something about God. To be sure, there is another side to God's power. There's a side that's prepared to destroy evil, the serpent and his kingdom of darkness. Unless you and I throw our thrones at the foot of the cross, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of God's wrath and unimaginable power. And that's true and that's important and that must be said. But as we look at the lamb, we need to reimagine the way we think about power. Christians, if you're not a Christian, can I appeal to you? Get on the right side of God's power. He has the ability and the wherewithal to see justice done in a world that's broken and dark. If you've spent most of your life on the receiving end of injustice, that is really, really good news. You long for the judgment of God. If perhaps, like all of us, to varying degrees, have spent a good portion of your life trying to avoid the reality of God's justice, 
because the thought of it terrifies you as it did me and still does. And you would do very, very well to submit to our Heavenly Father who's rich in mercy, who sent his own son to die for you and I so that we might come home and receive his love. If you don't know that love, if you still doubt whether or not our king is good and trustworthy, please trust him. Don't wait. It's an urgent matter. Christian, brother or sister, let us take our stand and reflect on the lamb power of our king and its radical implications for how we live our lives, for how we use the authority, the influence, the resources, the time, the power that we have in our own respective lives. came across this uh, quote just last night. I want to share this with you. It's a long one. 1956, while preaching a sermon entitled, The Most Endurable Power, Martin Luther King Jr. said, there will be many people of goodwill and strong moral sensitivity who will dare to take a stand for justice. But honesty impels me to admit that such a stand will require a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you are condemned and persecuted for righteousness sake. Whenever you take a stand for truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often you will be called an impractical idealist or optimist or pessimist or a dangerous radical Sometimes it might mean going to jail. If such is the case, you must honorably grace the jail with your presence. That's biblical. It might even mean physical death. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end or purpose of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is to not achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. This is lamb power. This is how our king has loved us, and this is how he leads the way. By the way, we're going to begin to break the seals over the next weeks to come, and we're going to see how this all plays out. So where do we go from here? Shall we finish the passage? Verse seven. And he went, the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, our prayers. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, 
and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. A myriad is apparently 10,000. So a myriad of a myriad would be 10,000 times 10,000. I think that's like, what, like 100 million or something? Quite a crowd. And thousands and thousands sang with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to achieve power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We were at the new building yesterday. And uh, I probably found about, I would guess, maybe 200 choir robes. Everything in the building that's still there is now ours. What do you guys think? (laughs) They're pretty sweet. (laughs) Well, we'll see. Hannah's like nodding, like, yes, let's do it. Gospel choir. I'm down. But what a picture. You know, of course, one a preacher can't help but wonder to himself, what prophetic symbol is this? God reminds us in the most wonderful and creative ways. We are worshipers. In the wake of this lamb power, this great victory won for us, for sinners, that we might come home. Heaven erupts in a worship chorus. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Apparently, if you do the apocalyptic math, it's actually like 10,000 times 10,000 times 1,000 times 1,000, which I think is actually like 100 trillion. Heaven erupts in a chorus of worship in the wake of this lamb power, in the wake of how God does power, in the wake of his great victory, in the wake of his mercy, in the wake of all that he's done. And this is the chorus that we're invited to join in, to put on our robes and begin to just sing of his grace, his glory, his power. What it means is that along the way, as we leave this place, as we get about, get, get about um, our jobs, our coworkers, especially that one difficult person that just sucks energy out of you all the time. You guys ever have that coworker? When we think about our environment, stewardship, money, our marriages, our singleness, our friendships, our family, our health, our bodies. I feel really passionate about this significance of our bodies. I think all too often we default into doing disembodied spirituality. It's so radically unbiblical. God wants to redeem our bodies. 
We worship with our bodies. We worship with our time. We worship with our money. We worship with our attitudes. We worship in our relationships. We worship just because it's the right and proper thing to do. I love what, again, Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, one, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We are worshipers if we are nothing else. It puts everything in our life in a different context. You know, worship isn't just, I mean, we say it every single week. The worship doesn't start, stop after song three ends. You ever notice we, we do exactly three songs every Sunday? Not always. But how easy is it to just lock into that, okay, I did worship, and now we're going to do something else. Now I'm going to maybe give a bit of money. Maybe I'm, I'll just get some coffee. Did you know that you can worship in your caffeine intake? Praise God. Okay, maybe that one's controversial. We are worshipers. The way we are church family together, the way we love each other, the way we bear with one another, the way we offend but then forgive each other and work it out because we've received grace and we need to figure out what graciousness looks like towards each other. As we do relationships well, as we love each other in a way that when the world looks on and they say, what's the deal with the weird Christians? If nothing else, they'll know that we belong to Jesus by the way we love one another. As we do all of that, it's meant to be like a chorus of worship. When we love together well, we're worshiping. Get the robes out. Let us use our power like the lamb. And let us join heaven's choir forming a celebratory supergroup, worshiping with every aspect of our lives, singing the new song of freedom as we learn to listen, trust, obey, and rejoice together as we take our stand and eagerly wait for the morning sun to finally dawn. Can we stand together, please? listening to Grace City Portland.